today is um, an interesting day. Many of us know it as Father's Day, so happy Father's Day. If, um, if you didn't know that was going on and you need to make a call or something like that, well, you're welcome. <laughs> it's also a day that is now officially known as Juneteenth Day or Freedom Day. Uh, I'm ashamed to say I didn't know what this was all about until just a couple of years ago. But back on June 19, 1865, Union Major General Gordon Granger arrived in Texas, and he issued a military order in Galveston uh, proclaiming the, the freedom of slaves. Some two years after President Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, he rode into Texas um, declaring that this is now the law of the land. And as he stood there before slaves, he read these words. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And ever since that day in 1865, there have been celebrations throughout our land. And I don't know about you, but because of where I was oriented and the education I had, I never learned about this. And I didn't know this was a day that was celebrated. And last year, President Biden signed into law um, a declaration declaring June 19th, the day that the Union soldier went into Galveston declaring this. It's now a federal holiday. And as this has been celebrated off and on throughout the years, it's now officially a day of celebration, a day when, when people remember all slaves being set free. Well, today we're going to look at another holiday of another country, this of the nation of Israel. And it was a holiday called the Passover. And our text finds us in Jerusalem with Jesus on the eve when he is about to be uh, betrayed and handed over and illegally tried, he gathers together with his disciples to celebrate what for them was a day of emancipation, a day of freedom, a day in which they remember that they too were once slaves and have been freed. And so we're going to call our study today Spiritual Feasting as we jump into this text and see what's called the Institution of the Lord's Supper. And so if you are exploring Christianity and you wonder why it is that Christians gather together around a table and eat bread and drink wine, this is going to help you understand a lot of that reason. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this will help you hopefully deepen in your understanding of this, this meal that Jesus gave his disciples. Because really at the heart of it, when Jesus wanted to explain for his disciples what his death was about, he didn't give them a, a theory to contemplate but rather a meal for them to share. And so we're going to unpack that today as we jump into this text. So would you pray with me as we get ready to unpack what is before us this day? Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity we have to once again open this ancient gospel of Luke, this historical biography written by this physician recording for us the life of Jesus. And so we thank you for it. We thank you that we've received it through the centuries and we pray, Lord, that as we open this, a text that for some of us is, is familiar, uh, would you meet us afresh this day? Help us to understand why Jesus gave his disciples a meal to share together and the significance of that, what it means for us individually, and what it means for us together as a church as we seek to be faithful followers of Jesus. And so be our teacher this day, we pray in his name. Amen. So, verse 7 tells us, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Now this Passover was something that was celebrated from the time when Israel had been liberated from slavery in Egypt. And right before that miraculous event happened, God instructed his people who were living as slaves, who had cried out because of the severity of their slavery. He instructed them to gather together and bring a lamb into their house. And for four days, this lamb lived with them until the fourth day when they sacrificed this lamb. Now, it struck me a number of years ago how this must have been very difficult in many ways. They were a culture used to eating meat like ours is, and so um, the, the killing of an animal to do that wasn't something that was strange. But what was interesting and hit me anew was that they brought this lamb into their house. And, you know, these things are cute. <laughs> and they lived with it. And it followed them around. They took it with them wherever they went. But then on the fourth day, they sacrificed it and ate it. And part of what they did with the blood was they would smear their doorposts of their dwellings with this blood. And as we're told, um, this, this figure called the angel of death swept through Egypt in, in a terrible and in a horrible event that caused such grief and wailing among the Egyptians that they finally sent these slaves and let them go. And so when this angel of death, we're told, passed through um, the encampments of these slaves and saw the blood on the doorpost, that angel of death passed over. And so ever since that day, they celebrated this feast called the Passover. And they would tell the story of God's liberation of their nation from slavery, the reason why they existed then. And they would say words like this from the book of Deuteronomy. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Before our eyes, the Lord inflicted great and devastating signs and wonders on Egypt, on Pharaoh, and all his household. But he brought us from there in order to lead us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. So that's the backstory and the backdrop of what Jesus and his disciples are doing now. They're in Jerusalem, the capital of their nation, and they're there on their most holy day, from which we get the word holiday for what would be the equivalent of July 4th, or now June 19th, where we mark days of, of liberation. They were marking a day of liberation, too, a day that defined them, the greatest act of redemption that they had ever seen. And so Jesus says in verse 9, or Luke tells us that this is what um, they said to him, where will, we, um, sorry, where will you have us prepare it? That is the Passover. And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell him, I'm sorry, tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. I think sometimes when we read this, we're like, how did Jesus know there'd be a man right there at that time and there would be this room here? And some people attribute that to just the, the knowledge that Jesus has of the divine son of God that he, he saw this in the future. And that might be the case, but it might also be the case that this is a prearranged um, event. That there was going to be a person there carrying water, preparing for Passover, and it seemed to be that he was on the lookout for these disciples. And so he takes them up and says to the master of the house, where is the room 
that it's been prepared, and they showed it to them. They found everything just like they needed it. So they didn't have to go buy groceries or anything. This room had been prepared. So for me, it seems like this was the prearrangement there. But whatever you way, way you lean on that, I'm fine with. Verse 14, it says, When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is what has been famously called the Last Supper. Here Jesus at last is with his disciples on the last meal he'll have with them. And he tells them not only, well, he, actually he didn't say, let's just eat. He didn't even say, I, I desire to eat this with you. But he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. For Jesus, this was monumental what's going on or what's about to happen. Jesus had celebrated the Passover with his disciples previously, so it wasn't a new thing, but there's something that was going to happen that was going to make this especially significant last supper, a last Passover with them. Now, Philip Ryken in his commentary said this, For Jesus and the disciples, the feast brought back some of the happiest memories of childhood, making the annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, eating roast lamb with their families, and praising God for his salvation. And so no doubt when they gathered together, this was a great and joyous time. And that's part of the reason why Jesus wanted to be there. But there's something even more pressing that makes him earnestly desire to eat this Passover. And he says he's wanted to do this with them before he suffers. Now remember, we've seen Jesus in the Gospels tell his disciples before he actually arrives to Jerusalem that he is going there and he's going to suffer. And for example, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, we've been told these words from Jesus. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But this like just went in one ear and out the other. They didn't have a category for the Messiah dying. And so I would like to ask them, what did you think when Jesus said these kind of things? And they might be like, what things? We didn't hear him say that. Um, they weren't expecting Jesus to suffer. They wrote in, they're risking their lives, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to overthrow the Roman oppression they're experiencing right now, and he's going to be seated as the new king of Israel. That's what they're expecting. And so here's Jesus again talking about suffering. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then he says this, For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What an interesting and almost cryptic sentence. I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. How is this going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God? Israel looked forward to this day that would come when God would make everything new. They called it the day of the Lord where evil will finally be, be squashed and put away and righteousness and justice would reign. That's what the kingdom of God was. It was a new creation. And so Jesus says he's not going to eat of this until it is fulfilled. And even in that terminology, it seems like there's a transformation of what this meal will mean. Now, some of you may remember when we studied earlier what was called the transfiguration of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus went up onto the mountain with his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John? And there he was what was called transfigured or transformed before their eyes. He, he began to glow and the divine glory rested upon him. And there he met two of the, the greatest prophets that had come before him. And we're told this in Luke 9. 
Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Isn't that interesting? That word departure in the original language is the word exodus. They spoke to Jesus about his coming exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus is about to accomplish an exodus in Jerusalem. This is mind-blowing language because the original Exodus was all about liberation, the freedom of slaves. And so that's going on in the background as we think about what is being said here. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to eat of this again until I eat it with you in the kingdom of heaven. Philip Ryken again is helpful in his commentary. He says, soon that sacrament, that is the sacrament of Passover, would find its true fulfillment in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would never have to have occasion to celebrate it. That is the Passover again. Instead, the people of God would celebrate the new sacrament of the new covenant in Christ by eating the bread and drinking the wine of the Lord's Supper. Very well said, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we're told in verse 17 that he, that is Jesus, took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. On the original Passover meal, there were four different cups, four different cups of blessing or thanksgiving that would be raised. And this is one of those as Jesus enacts that Passover celebration before them. But he gives it to them and he stresses again, he will not drink. He will not eat and he will not drink of this meal again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So here's a key thought. This last supper becomes the last Passover meal because Jesus is about to accomplish a far greater exodus, being himself the Passover lamb. This is what Jesus is setting up his disciples to understand. Now remember, uh, back in the early part of the Gospels, we're told when Jesus was um, about to be baptized, John the Baptist is out baptizing people, and Jesus approaches him, and he says to the crowds, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so here Jesus is already being identified as a sacrificial lamb. And so hold that in your mind as well. Verse 19, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But someone says, what did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body? Well, that's one of our former presidents once said, it depends on what the definition of is, is, right? What did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body? And probably many of you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the history of the church about exactly what it means when Jesus says, this is my body. Now, there are some who believe that the bread and the wine actually turn into the literal body and blood of Jesus, this is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. They call it transfigur... I'm sorry, not transfiguration. Transubstantiation. Transfiguration is the term that's referred to the glorification of Jesus on that mountain with his disciples. Transubstantiation. The elements of bread and wine are transformed. The substance of them are transformed, even though the outward appearance still looks like bread and wine. And so every time at a Catholic Mass, the 
people are, are witnessing the priest saying the words of institution, in their minds they understand it as a miracle that takes place that transforms it into the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus. So that when you eat of it, you're literally eating flesh. You're literally drinking blood. Now, here at Mercy Hill Church, we don't subscribe to that view of things. Part of the reason is because when Jesus gave this bread and this cup to his disciples, they were holding in their hands something distinct. I mean, Jesus' body did not come. He didn't break off an appendage. I don't mean to be crass. He didn't break off a finger and put it on a plate and give it to them and say, this is my body. He didn't drain some blood from one of his veins and said, here, drink this. All right? And so when they were eating that bread and drinking that cup, Jesus' body completely remained intact with them. And so some Christians, in, re- in rejection of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, um, say that there's nothing literal about this. It's, it's a mere memorial. The bread and the wine are merely aids to help us remember that Jesus died for us. Nothing more and nothing less. So when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, it's just a tool to help us remember something that happened 2,000 years ago. And the question I want to ask is, given that the Lord's table helps us remember the sacrifice of Jesus, is there something more going on here? Is it just merely an aid to remember something that happened 2,000 years ago? And I think the answer to that is partly found in understanding that Jesus is using a figure of speech here, which he did on various occasions. For example, at one point he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus didn't mean he was a literal door. His body wasn't transformed into a door. But he's using a metaphor here. Or how about this one? I am the vine and you are the branches. Everyone understood Jesus was using a figure of speech there. Or one more, I am the bread of life. No one understood Jesus to have all of a sudden transformed into a loaf of bread. He's using a metaphor. And that's where we kind of camp out here at Mercy Hill Church. Uh, It's called the, the real spiritual presence of Christ view of the Lord's Supper. We say Jesus is using a figure of speech, a metaphor, to help his disciples understand that he is really present in this meal in a way that nourishes our souls spiritually. In other words, it's not just a mere aid to remember, but something else is happening whenever we break this bread and drink this cup in which God himself nourishes us on Jesus Christ. And so to unpack this a little bit more, We want to say sacraments are sacred mysteries that speak to us about the gospel. Now, that word sacrament sacrament may be familiar with with you or not. Um, It's a word that simply means sacred, and used in various discussions, uh, they refer to both the Lord's Supper and baptism. And the reason why they're a mystery is not because they're mysterious, but because they remain a mystery until it is explained or understood. So, for example... Jesus gave us baptism for a person to undergo. And so when that water is poured upon a person, or they're immersed, however churches do it, uh, we understand that there is a picture of the washing away of sins, of cleanness, of newness. But you wouldn't necessarily get that just watching a baptism take place. That would have to be something that's explained to you and revealed to you. And in the same way, when we drink this bread Drink this bread. Eat this bread and drink this cup. 
someone could observe it and go, well, what are they, is this just a snack they're doing at church? I don't understand what's going on here. And it, it remains a mystery until the meaning of it is unveiled. And I want to submit to you, my friends, that when Jesus says the bread is his body, which is given for us, and the wine is his blood, which is shed for us, we need to see Jesus infusing that Passover meal with a new meaning and telling us, I am the ultimate Passover sacrifice. I love what John Calvin said um, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, the sacraments are exercises which make us more certain of the trustworthiness of God's word. For by them, he manifests himself to us and attests his goodwill and love toward us more expressly than by the word. What does he mean by that? How do the the sacraments make us more certain? How do they help us grab the meaning more expressly than just by the word alone? He's not meaning to make the word less important. But what he's saying here is that when we experience this, there's something going on here than just mere hearing. What a blessing it is to be able to hear the gospel proclaimed to us. What a blessing it is to read. But you see, when we participate in one of the sacraments, there are more than just one single um, sense being stimulated. In the preaching of the word, we hear. That's primarily what we do. I put words up on the screen so your vision is being stimulated as well. But when we come together and take this bread and this cup, we see elements that are meant to nourish and our senses are stimulated. Not only do we hear the words of institution, what this is all about, but we get to take it into our hands. And our sense of smell is stimulated, especially with the wine. Our vision places itself upon these objects. And experientially, together, we take this bread into our body. So our sense of taste uh, is stimulated as well. And so the reason why these help us help make it more certain or, or comes to us more expressly is because it appeals to more senses. That's all he's saying here. Now, Jesus could have made it where we didn't have baptism or we didn't have the Lord's Supper. But he knows that sometimes in our weakness, we need the assurance so we can look back on our baptism and remember that it reminds us of the cleansing blood of Jesus. And when we gather together week in and week out, we, we come to this table and we're reminded that Jesus has fellowship with us and that he nourishes us upon himself. Let me put it this way. In the supper, we get to hear, see, touch, smell, and taste the gospel all by faith. Through this sacrament, or through these sacraments, God nourishes our faith as the gospel of Jesus is tangibly set before us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now that can, I'm risking a little bit here putting it this way. What do you mean you smell the gospel? But in this moment, when we gather together at the table, we're gathering around these elements here so we can actually see, touch, smell, and taste the good news of Jesus as we participate in this together. Now, I want to take just a, a brief detour for a second and go to a place in the Gospel of John where Jesus is doing some teaching here and, and people are trying to get their minds around what he means. This is John chapter 6 in this famous passage where Jesus said, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So Jesus is saying, the Father has sent me, and if you believe upon me, you will have eternal life. Now, for those of us who are around Christianity and have heard Jesus hear this, we're like, yeah, that's something totally Jesus would say. But we kind of forget how scandalous this would be. I pretend like my friend Zeb would stand up and just say to everyone, hey, this is the will of God. If everyone looks to me, <laughs> you will have eternal life. And we kind of look at Zeb and go, no, I don't think that's right. <laughs> but this is something that Jesus said over and over again. And then he says this, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews, in the Gospel of John, the Jews are the Jewish leaders. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is Jesus talking about here, saying that he's the bread of life, and if we eat of his flesh, we will live forever? And then the gospel goes on and says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. They're kind of scratching their head a little bit, saying, What is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean? We have to eat his body. We have to drink his blood. That just doesn't make sense. And so Jesus, in one sense, could have stepped back and clarified for it a little bit. But what he does is he just leans forward into it. Truly, truly. That's his way of highlighting what he's saying. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Jesus is saying, I must be everything to you. I must become your nourishment. I must become your life. And I think here that he's speaking in metaphor. Why? Because he hadn't even instituted the Lord's Supper yet. So he can't be referring to that. That doesn't happen until the night before he's crucified. But here Jesus is using the metaphor of eating him, of, of drinking his blood to communicate that he has eternal life. And he must be inside of us if we are to live forever. And so... I want to say this, just as bread and wine nourish our physical lives, so feasting on Jesus by faith nourishes our spiritual lives. And so we're not saying that this bread and these, these cups of juice and wine up here actually turn into the physical body and blood of Jesus. But isn't it interesting, after what Jesus had told those Jews who are listening to him about how we must feast on him, he then goes on to give a meal in which we can participate in, that Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. Take, eat, and drink. Now, I'm running up across the same problem that John Calvin had in trying to explain this. Because in one sense, I could think much further than I have the artistic ability to communicate here. Listen to what he said. For whenever this matter is discussed, when I've tried to say all, I feel that as yet, I feel that I have as yet said little in proportion to its worth. Although my mind can think beyond what my tongue can utter, yet even my mind is conquered and overwhelmed by the greatness of the thing. Therefore, nothing remains but to break forth in wonder at this mystery, which plainly neither the mind is able to conceive or the tongue express. What is Calvin saying here? He's saying we can think a lot about this meal and try to think a lot about what Jesus said when he communicated, this is my body and this is my blood. 
and it's just hard to put into words. And he says, essentially, it's better to experience it than to explain it. Philip Reichen, in his commentary, talking about these words of institution, says, they are words um, it takes only a moment to understand, but a lifetime to comprehend. For although they are simple in themselves, they reveal many deep mysteries of the gospel. Back to verse 20. Jesus says, likewise, the, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What does Jesus mean here when he talks about the new covenant? To his disciples, this would have resonated with them immediately and intensely. Because in their history, the blood of the covenant had been spoken of uh, multiple times, all the way back to the prophet Moses, when God entered into a covenantal relationship with the, the, the then redeemed nation of Israel. And he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, and the sacrifice that took place there. Fast forward several hundred years to the time of Jeremiah. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law on them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So here was promised a new covenant or a new relationship with God. And it's simply called the new covenant. So Jesus is resonating on that. And that's why, my friends, the Apostle Paul would say this to the Corinthian Christians. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Drawing together all these threads of liberation and freedom and forgiveness, understanding the death of Jesus now means we understand that he has become our Passover lamb, and therefore we keep the feast. And so, my friends, Jesus is life. In fact, he is eternal life. And so we feast upon him by faith. We grab hold of him by believing everything he says. And when he offers himself to us and says, you must feast upon me if you want eternal life, we respond by saying, yes, Jesus, we want you. And he becomes our nourishment. He becomes our very life, springing forth to eternal life. So let me just give you a couple points of application. I'm going to run through a handful of them here, actually. When we come to this table, let's come humbly. When we come to this table, I think there's a part of us that should say, wow, it was my sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was my sins that made it necessary for there to be a Passover lamb, a new one, an ultimate one, that could be slain for me for the forgiveness of sins. And yet, I am welcomed by Jesus to come to this table. That should humble us deeply. And it's one of the reasons we should say we, we should always come to this table repentantly. We should never come presumptuously thinking that we have merit or that um, God is patting us on the back because we had a really good week or something like that. We should always come humbly because it took nothing less than the sacrifice of Jesus to welcome us into the presence of Jesus. But let me say we, we should also come hungry. And I don't mean physically hungry. I mean spiritually hungry. I hope every Sunday when you come to church, in the back of your mind, there's this thought that I really need to hear about Jesus today. That's why we continually, week in and week out, 
talk about Jesus. No matter where we are in the scriptures, we set Jesus before you. And so I want you to come hungry. And I want your, your soul to feast on the gospel. And then when we gather together at the table, we come saying, Jesus, I am hungry. I am thirsty for you. Feed me. Nourish me. And he promises to do so. There's this interesting quote by Simone Wheel who said, The danger is not lest the soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but lest, by a lie, it should persuade itself that it is not hungry. This table of communion, what we call the Lord's table, does us no good if we don't come to it hungry for Jesus. If we don't come wanting to be nourished on the good news of all that he is for us. And so, in some ways, we come week in and week out saying, Jesus, this world doesn't satisfy me. My endless scrolling on social media doesn't satisfy me. Yeah, it was neat that I was able to get that car, but at the end of the day, it doesn't satisfy me. My dream job, it doesn't satisfy me. Not like I'm designed to be satisfied. That's why we sing in one of the songs that we sing often here at Mercy Hill. All the treasures of this world will never satisfy. You alone are endless joy. So I cling to Christ. This table is meant to to answer the hungry soul that you have as it helps us cling afresh to, to Christ. Another way we should come to this table is to come believing. It it does us no good to come to this table unless we have trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, unless we believe in him. It does us no more good than than water falling on a rock. There's nothing that penetrates us. There's nothing that transforms. And so we can't come to this table if we don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, sure, I mean, we might end up uh, in a church somewhere and find ourselves taking communion. But unless there's a part of us that is feasting on Christ by faith, it will do us no good. It just becomes an empty ritual. We should also come to this table celebrating. And the reason I want to stress this point is that sometimes in communion services I've been a part of, it is so somber. (laughs) It's like going to a funeral. And I just want to say to people, the funeral of Jesus happened 2,000 years ago. (laughs) He's not dead. We're not remembering a dead Messiah. We're we're, we're communing with a, a living Messiah. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's seated on the throne of heaven, and he's coming back for us. And so in a sense, we need to not get stuck navel-gazing. We need to to be outwardly focused upon Jesus, who welcomes us into his presence. This is one of the reasons, my friends, why we sing when we come to communion, because it helps us to enter into uh, that moment of of celebration. And it don't have to be like wild, crazy songs even, but just singing and focusing on the gospel reminds us of all that Christ has done for us. How about this one? We should come regularly to the table. My friends, it is beyond controversy. It's not even a controversial point of interest. The early church took communion weekly. When we see examples in the New Testament, they gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. In fact, when Paul is speaking to the Corinthians in the letter of 1 Corinthians that we have in our New Testament... The whole worship service is described as coming to the Lord's table, when you come together to the Lord's table. So the early church, as often as they did it, did it at least weekly. When they came together and heard the gospel proclaimed, they shared together in a meal. That's one of the reasons we do it weekly. I've... I've, 
I remember talking with a friend of mine, uh, and we were talking about this issue of communion and how often we should do it. And he was telling me that his mother had gone to a church, and she was faithful week in and week out. For 43 years, she attended the church, and not once did she ever take communion. And to me, that was kind of mind-blowing. And I've been taking communion weekly for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years now, it seems. And to gather together and not have communion just seems like something is missing. It's kind of like signing a contract without the handshake or going to a wedding without the wedding gift or something like that. It just seems like there's always something missing. And so let's come regularly. We set this before this church regularly because we need to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus and to enter into this moment of communion with one another. And so let me just say on that, my friends, as well, I wonder if we could resolve to come regularly to be a part of this communion together. It's one thing if the church never sets it before you, but it's a whole another thing if the church sets it before you and you don't ever come. Jesus gave this meal to his disciples, and he wants his disciples to grow in this meal week in and week out. How about this? We should come together. We don't do communion by ourselves. This is a communion table where we commune with the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also commune with one another, which, by the way, is part of what helps our fellowship become more rich. When I gather here together and I see like my friend Kristen, I know some of her story and some of the ways she's seeking to grow in Christ, or I, I see my friend Rich and I know some of his story, and Georgia, I know some of her struggles, and Aaron, I know some of his sins, and <laughs> I, I know that I'm here among people who struggle, who sin, who don't follow Jesus perfectly, but I'm here together as one of them. And together we come to this table. And so it makes it much richer to know the people that we are taking communion with. And so we should come together. In fact, the Apostle Paul said this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a fellowship in the body of Christ? When we come together and we break this bread and drink this cup, our fellowship is rooted in Jesus Christ. Which means it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, whether you're a man or a woman, whatever your educational level is, whatever, we all come together equal at this table because it's the gospel of Jesus that connects us. And so here's the final point. We should also come longing. We should come longing. And what do I mean by that? Remember how Jesus was hinting about the kingdom to come, how he wouldn't partake of this meal with his disciples until something happens, until the kingdom comes. And so this meal helps us not only think into the past, it helps us think into the future when all things are made new and the kingdom of God has come. We fast forward to the end of the scriptures, to the book of Revelation, we hear these beautiful words. Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So when we come together, we take this bread and drink this cup, it helps us to root us in the story that's going to culminate in what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. So just a quick review. The Lord's table helps us to remember what Jesus did in the past, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. 
but it also helps root us in this present moment, right now, right exactly where we are in this moment, the fact that we all desperately need Jesus, and we get to commune with him right now in this place and with one another. And it also helps root us into the future in which you and I, by God's grace, will be seated at that communion table, that eternal communion table, what the scriptures strain to describe as this eternal feast with Jesus and his bride. So my friends, whenever we gather together, may you remember that these are the gifts of God for the people of God. And may you take them believing that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving.